hazmat suits, paramedics, firefighters at the ballot box. Today, authorities in Adams County, Colorado, right next to Denver, announced that local law enforcement and the FBI are investigating a ballot they received in an envelope containing a suspicious powdery substance. It is crazy on its face that we're at a point here where someone trying to harm election workers is even within the realm of possibility. But what makes the story truly remarkable is how the Adams County clerk is handling all of this. Back in May, he told ABC News that threats he and his fellow election workers were facing were so bad that he was wearing a bulletproof vest to work. And he was not alone. Election workers in multiple Colorado counties underwent active shooter training and started wearing their own bulletproof vests because of the threats that have been pouring in as a result of the big lie. The Adams County clerk went so far as to ask his employees to not take the same route home from work every day. That is how concerned they are for their own safety. And yet, even when presented with something as terrifying as an envelope containing a suspicious powdery substance, here is the Adams County clerk's response. The voters' anonymity is protected and their constitutional right to vote is in place. Should it be determined safe, safe, we will move forward with processing this ballot. It will move forward with processing that ballot, even if it contains a suspicious white powdery substance. That is America at its best. That is our democracy at work. Facing that kind of threat and still saying you will do everything possible to make sure every vote counts. That is heroism. And then there is the election news out of Wisconsin. A few days ago, a Republican Wisconsin state lawmaker named Janelle Branchen, a person known for embracing election-related conspiracy theories, Janelle Branchen got these in the mail. There were three military absentee ballots. They weren't for her. She didn't request them. She just got them in the mail. So she took them to the local sheriff, and she made a very big deal about how unsecure our elections actually are. Now, that is on its face something, but what makes the story singularly insane is what we learned today. Those mystery military absentee ballots were sent by the deputy director of Milwaukee's election commission, a woman named Kimberly Zapata. Yes. Rather than running the election, making sure every vote was counted, this election director, Mrs. Zapata, was actively trying to sow distrust in the election. She didn't catch fraud. She made it up. Zapata has since been fired, and she may even face misdemeanor state charges, but that does not fix the damage here, the pernicious theory that somehow this election is rigged. So over in Colorado, we have election workers facing physical threats for just doing their jobs. And in Wisconsin, we have election administrators ginning up fraud where it doesn't actually exist. And today, Reuters reported that they have identified 23 statewide and local door-to-door canvassing groups intimidating voters. Some of them carried weapons and they wore badges trying to make themselves seem like they were officials of some kind. Rather than explaining where residents could vote or promoting a candidate, these canvassers grilled residents on their voting history and asked them who lived in their homes. Reuters identified at least 19 states where pro-Trump canvassers like this are using their quote-unquote findings to allege fraud on the basis of inaccurate voter registration lists. In Michigan, a group is already planning to use their list of supposed irregularities to challenge voters in the November 8th election. To be clear, we are now headed for what will likely be the election with the most allegations of fraud in American history. So just watch.
there is a lot going on here. As bad as the unfounded challenges to the 2020 election were, in retrospect, it sort of looks like amateur hour. That, that was Rudy Giuliani, right? Impro- improvising election fraud claims in front of four seasons total landscaping. But this year, there are countless organized groups that have plans to watch the polls and work the polls and intimidate voters and spread misinformation. The Associated Press has already counted more than 100 lawsuits largely filed by Republicans targeting everything from mail-in voting to voting registration and access for partisan poll watchers. So what's the plan for everybody else? How do Americans, how do officials, how do people who like representative democracy, how do they fight back through all this chaos and make sure this country has an election where the votes are counted and the results are actually honored? After President Trump prematurely declared victory in 2020, well before all the votes were in and the election was decided, Biden campaign manager Jen O'Malley Dillon held daily election protection briefings where she and a campaign lawyer would break down all the bogus election lawsuits and talk about what was actually happening with the real election results. Those few days in which the election hadn't been called yet, I don't know if you can remember them, but I, I remember them as sort of hellishly anxious and anxiety producing. And Jen O'Malley Dillon and her briefings, they were critical in reassuring the country that the process had not been derailed, that the center was still holding. Jen O'Malley Dillon is now President Biden's White House Deputy Chief of Staff. And I want to know from her, what is the plan this year? Joining us now is Jen O'Malley Dillon, campaign manager for Joe Biden in 2020 and current White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Jen, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. I know it's a It's a complicated time for for everybody who's looking out on the electoral landscape. And I just want to start with how we navigated this uh, just two years ago. What did you learn from doing those briefings for the American public in those fraught days after um, Election Day in 2020? Thanks for having me, Alex. You've already brought me back. Uh, It's hard to believe it's only been two years. And also, uh, you know, it it feels like just yesterday. But, you know, I think what we learned then is a lot of what you heard from President Biden last night, which is we have to communicate what's going to happen and how it's going to go across the country so that people are tracking what's happening. Democracy is, is fragile. Knowledge and information is the power that the American people have. And that's what the president was talking about last night that the, the American people have the right uh, to vote, to make their vo- voices heard. That's the most powerful thing, that they um, participate in this democracy. And at the same time, he wanted to be clear that he is confident that we will have uh, a great election. We will have your votes counted. Uh, we will be able to vote in safe and secure ways. And he's confident of that. But also, the American people do need to have patience. That's a lot of what we talked about in 2020. Many of these states will be close elections. Elections. Uh, many of these states have already had extraordinary turnout across the country. That's what we want to see, people voting of all parties. Uh, but that's going to take time to count. In some places, the counting of some of those early votes won't start until the morning of Election Day. In some, uh, it might take a little bit longer. And in order to ensure every vote is counted, we, the American people, need to make sure that we understand that's going to take some time. We gave it that time in 2020, uh, and we were confident across the board uh, that every vote was counted. It was a free and fair election that this country is founded on and built on. uh, And he expects to see that again uh, in 2022. 
What I mean, are you do you differ? Do you, I guess, disagree with the thesis we laid out at the start of this conversation that this year the existential threats seem so much more? Well, they're more numerous and they it feels much more organized, um, both from, you know, an outside group perspective and from within the elections infrastructure. There are actors who want to see. Uh, a bad count that want to disenfranchise voters that don't want a free and fair election. Do you think that we're in a more fraught time in 2022 than we were in 2020 in terms of the actors and the tools they're using to undermine democracy? Well, I think President Biden spoke to this very clearly last night where he said that democracy is under assault and that it is up to all of us uh, to be able to, to to do something about it. Now, certainly, you know, he's been talking about this uh, for a very long time. In fact, this was a big part of um, launching his campaign to begin with, that we were an inflection point as a country, that this was a battle for the soul of the nation. Uh, and obviously, we saw many of these elements in 2020, but it really does feel like the tip of the iceberg. At the same time, I think that we as a country are more prepared because people like President Biden are speaking about this, because um, the federal government is working closely with state and local law enforcement and election officials to make sure people are ready uh, for anything that can happen, that they're very vigilant. I will say, and I think it's very important to say that we have been briefed by law enforcement. There are no specific credible threats at this time. Um, obviously, we'll continue to stay focused on that. The president was is obviously focused on that. He wants to make sure um, that everyone has the resources they have, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, to make sure that the law is upheld and people are able to execute their vote uh, in a democracy. But it's, it's a fragile democracy, and the strength of it, as the president has said, is in the people and their voice and in their participation. Can you talk to me a little bit about that strategy? You talk about the federal government working with state and local officials. What does that look like? What, what can you tell us about what you're preparing for and how much of it is informed by the strategy you employed in 2020? So, you know, of course, um, I'm speaking from an official standpoint at this point in, in the, the campaign in 2020. That was a little bit more campaign tactics. But what I can tell you, you know, again, there are no credible specific threats at this time, but the president wants to make sure everyone's ready. So there's a few things that I would um, point you to. What, what does that actually look like? Well, um, last week there was a joint intelligence bulletin that went out um, from Department of Homeland Security, FBI and the Department of Justice to local uh, election officials to share and alert um, the types of threats that people could potentially see in this complex threat environment and to make sure that they're ready uh, to, to be looking out for the right things. Um, I know that the Department of Justice and the FBI have for months been training thousands of these election workers to make sure that they're prepared and they know what to look for and what to understand. Uh, and at the same time, Department of Homeland Security has had voluntary uh, uh, security assessments for election facilities so that uh, they can uh, work with them as well. So there's a lot of readiness here, certainly based on experiences that, um, you know, we are we are all looking at and, and at the same time, um, making sure that we're in partnership and communication and we're just staying vigilant. But again, the president is extremely confident, has said this to the American people, believes this deeply as he did in 2020. 
the American people's votes are going to be cast and they're going to be counted. Jen, let me just ask you one more question. You talked at the outset of this conversation about patience, right? That was the sort of operative word in the the shadow of Election Day in 2020. And I remember those briefings. You guys were out there saying, just be patient. We know what this is what's happening here. This is what's happening here. We know when the vote is counted, we are confident we will be the the victors here. There are going to be a lot of people that do not have a lot of patience after Election Day this year. And in many ways, it feels more fraught. The pump is primed for a much more anxious, potentially violent situation. How does the White House communicate to a rest of American public, no matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that patience is what is called for in this moment where impatience seems to be the driver? Well, look, I think there's two parts to this. First of all, you know, the president has been clear that there is no place for violence or intimidation or harassment uh, in our political discourse and in our, our democracy. And when you see that, we need to call that out. And he's going to continue to say that. At the same time, it is important to make sure that we remember that there are millions and millions of people that will cast their ballots this year, uh, hopefully, and it looks like on track more than uh, recent midterm elections. And in that case, it is important to remember that it is better to make sure we have the opportunity to count every single uh, vote and that that's his expectation. I will add, and, and to what you said at the top, most of these election workers, they're volunteers. They're people like you and I who believe in this country, who give of their time, who work, who are in extraordinary circumstances. We certainly have heard that uh, through the January 6th committee and what we saw in many of the states in 2020. And so these are people in your communities, in your neighborhoods, doing this work because this is what they believe in and their democracy and their commitment to this country. Uh, and because of them, the unsung heroes of all of this, uh, we are going to have a an election that Every vote will be counted. Uh, We're confident of that, and we're going to continue to give our support there across the country. It ain't over till it's over. Jen O'Malley, Dylan, just seeing you and hearing you talk about the 2020 election and urging patience is giving me, I think, agita a little bit, but I'm seriously, deeply appreciative of your time and efforts. Thank you. White House Deputy Chief of Staff Jen O'Malley, Dylan, thanks for your time. Thanks, Alex. Great to be with you. Coming up, a New York state judge has ordered an independent watchdog to supervise the Trump organization's financial transactions, citing, quote, defendants propensity to engage in persistent fraud. We'll discuss with former assistant D.A. Rebecca Royfe. But first, Stacey Abrams joins me to talk about the high stakes race for governor of Georgia and what exactly is happening with black voter turnout. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. 
We are five days out from Election Day, five days from learning who will control Congress next year and what the national agenda will be for the next two years. But 36 states are also picking a governor on Tuesday, and those races are among the most consequential in the nation. Some of the pieces of legislation that most directly impact you are signed not by the president, but by the governor of your state. We've seen governors sign bills that improve the life of their lives of their constituents, and we've seen others that do the exact opposite. In an interview with NPR, Stacey Abrams, who is the woman who has a chance of becoming the nation's first black female governor, she explained this very clearly. In Georgia, the governor is an extraordinarily powerful job. Mm. Stand your ground was signed by a governor, not by a president. The evisceration of the social safety net started with a governor, not not with Congress. Jim Crow started and was the product of Southern governors. Voters in Georgia were given a sharp reminder of the state's legacy of Jim Crow and the history that preceded it in March of 2021, when their governor, Brian Kemp, signed his Election Integrity Act, a Republican-sponsored overhaul of the state's elections, when he signed that into law. It restricts voting by mail, it limits drop boxes, increases voter ID requirements, and criminalizes passing out water to voters waiting all day in lines. Democrats expected the law to make it harder for black people to vote. And it was being signed by a man who purged hundreds of thousands of primarily black voters from the voting rolls in 2018 as secretary of state and later purged 100,000 more as governor. Democrats like state Congresswoman Park Cannon protested. She was then arrested for knocking on the governor's door as he signed that bill. Do you remember that? That's because Kemp signed it into law behind closed doors. And once the ink was dry, Kemp tweeted this picture of him and the half dozen white men who were allowed in the room. Do you see that painting hanging above him? That is Georgia's Callaway Plantation. It's a 56-acre historic site where white landowners enslaved more than 100 black people, a large swath of agricultural land in a county where black people trying to escape enslavement were hunted down by hounds. Black people were emancipated from that plantation in 1865, only to be subjected to Jim Crow laws aimed at restricting their right to vote by the 1890s. That, that is the history Governor Kemp chose to invoke as he signed this bill. And that is the law now in effect for the first time in a Georgia general election cycle. By way of context here, in 2018, Brian Kemp won Georgia's race for governor by fewer than 55,000 votes. 55,000 out of 4 million cast. He is now running again with five days to go. And every single vote counts. Joining us now is Stacey Abrams, the Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, who is in the final leg of her campaign right in these very hours Stacey, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. So let me just first ask, the Washington Post has an extensive piece of reporting on the black vote in America, and it rightly points out that black voters were responsible for turning Georgia blue, that black voters got Joe Biden elected in many ways. What is your expectation for black voter turnout in this election by Election Day? We know early voting has started. How do you see the numbers? Where do you see the numbers? Go ahead. The numbers are extraordinary. We have seen black men participate at 91.8% of their 2020 general election turnout. We have seen black women participate at 90%. These are the two highest concentrations of voters. And let's be clear, they are participating despite the impediments of SB 202, despite the racially charged voter challenges authorized by SB 202. 
despite the barriers to using absentee ballots, which Black voters used in abundance in 2018 and 21 until the time was truncated and the process made more complicated. They are doing this despite hurdles and barriers because they know how vital this election is. And it is deeply disingenuous, if not simply tone deaf, for a secretary of state or governor to dismiss the difficulties black and brown voters have in this state simply because they haven't experienced it themselves. And what we are so excited about is despite the difficulties that have been put in place by this governor and this secretary of state, black voters are showing up and, as we like to say, showing out. Yes. And when you talk about the dismissals on the part of the governor, we know that Brad Raffensperger, the Republican secretary of state, has dismissed the claims that somehow SB 202 made it difficult for black folks to vote because witness the turnout. You're saying here that the turnout is despite the hurdles that very much remain in place in the state of Georgia. Do you think that in some ways it galvanized black voters or do you think that that's a function of just the stakes and the candidates and everything else that's going on in terms of American democracy? I think it's all of the above. There could not be a clear contrast between me and my opponent, between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. I believe in a woman's right to choose, as does Raphael Warnock. Herschel Walker, Brian Kemp will strip women of those rights, even though they believe that some of they, they are hypocrites on this issue. Raphael Warnock and I believe in access to health care for half a million Georgians who are being denied that access right now. Brian Kemp oversaw the shutdown of six hospitals, including a level one trauma center on Tuesday, which means Atlanta, the metro area, has one level one trauma center. By contrast, Charleston, South Carolina has three. Atlanta has one. And the population of Atlanta, Metro Atlanta, is larger than the population of the state of South Carolina. We know that this is about our future, especially our right to survive. And Black voters understand this at a visceral level. And they are turning out, because we've talked about this for the past two years, that the only way to defeat voter suppression is with voter turnout. And they are showing up and making that so. How, though, I mean, there's there's a piece of how you sort of protect the lives of your constituents through making sure they have access to health care, that they have reproductive choice. There's policy decisions you can make as governor that directly impact the lives of your constituents, especially black and brown people. But what about the sort of existential threats that people of color are facing right now? I refer back to this Washington Post piece where they report that black voters are observing more hate and hostility towards black people, hate and hostility towards Jewish people, Asian Americans, various immigrant groups, people feel like they are under assault. How would you as governor ensure that their lives are protected? How do you navigate this climate of fear and hatred when it's very much playing out in your backyard in the state of Georgia? I'll continue to do as governor what I've done for the last 15 years. When we launched this campaign, if you go to stacyabrams.com, you will see that we have our website in multiple languages. We did it from the outset so that communities of color could access information immediately in their native tongues. We did that because I see everyone. I've worked hard to build relationships across communities with the Latino community, the API community. I've been down to Wiggum, which is the only state recognized federal state recognized Native American tribe in Georgia. I've done the work of reaching out to black voters across the board. And we do so because I understand it. But it's also about making sure the laws respect us. Uh, six Asian women were murdered 
in March of 2021 by a young man who was able to purchase a weapon without a waiting period and go to three different locations and kill six Asian women. And the response of this governor was to try to weaken gun laws weeks later to make it even easier for those murders to have occurred. That's the difference. And it is a difference that is clear. And so it's not just about what we do with the law. It's who we see as part of the state. I am standing up for and fighting for every Georgian, building a multiracial, multiethnic coalition, and we are seeing it work. That's why I'm so excited and so bullish on this election, because we know that when people hear themselves reflected and when they see themselves respected, they show up because they know that's when democracy is at its strongest, when they have the right to set the future. Well, I just have one more question for you. As you mentioned, Herschel Walker, we were talking about race. Race is a very, very complicated issue, especially in the Georgia race. Raphael Warnock, Herschel Walker running against each other. When you're on the campaign trail and you're talking to voters of color, how are they looking at that race where you have two black men of very different qualifications, shall I say? And I'm being, I think, euphemistic. What do you hear about how people are processing that and thinking about the implications of of electing either one of them in in many respects? Electing Raphael Warnock is very different than electing Herschel Walker. I think too often race is seen as a reductive point of conversation. It's the beginning of the conversation. We know in this country race tells us something, but it doesn't tell us everything. And what we are seeing with Raphael Warnock versus Herschel Walker, what we're seeing in my election, is that while race may be the beginning of the conversation, people want to know what you're doing with those experiences. What does it mean to grow up black and poor in the South, which both Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock know as do I. But the difference is what Raphael Warnock and I have done with those experiences is expand opportunity for others. We have fought for access for others. We have leveraged our experiences to create more for others. The same cannot be said of Herschel Walker, and the same can certainly not be said of a governor who allows six hospitals to shut down, who has weakened gun laws, who has stripped women of their access to abortion rights, who has said that it is not his job to close a 100-year economic parity gap, and who has said that he doesn't want to provide access to affordable housing because he doesn't want to upset investors. When you don't understand those experiences, you can't have an intelligent conversation about how to solve them when your position of power often allows you to ignore the realities. And what people are saying is that Raphael Warnock, as their U.S. senator, and Stacey Abrams, as their next governor, will stand and fight for them, and together we can win for them. And certainly he will not be signing bills into law in front of pictures of plantations in Georgia. I think that's fairly guaranteed. Stacey Abrams, Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia. We will be following this race, Stacey Abrams. Good luck there out there on the trail. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Up next here tonight, a big win for New York's attorney general and her lawsuit against Donald Trump's company. We have details on that coming up. And later, what exactly is at at stake for Democrats in the House and why they are not giving up despite the historical odds? Stay with us. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow.
There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. It was six weeks ago that New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a $250 million fraud lawsuit against Donald Trump, his business, and three of his adult children. And on that same day, the very day Letitia James filed that suit seeking to make Trump, his company, and his family pay $250 million, the Trump organization created a brand new company, a new corporate entity that they registered in New York. It was called, and I am not kidding here, Trump Organization 2 LLC. We'll just move all the money to Trump Organization 2, then they'll never find it. To be clear, we do not know that they created this new carbon copy of the Trump Organization as part of a plan to hide assets, but that is certainly what Tish James thought they were trying to do. And she asked the judge in her fraud, fraud lawsuit to issue an injunction preventing the Trump Organization from transferring any of its assets anywhere, like to Trump Organization 2. Well, today, that judge granted the request. Trump's lawyer argued that a court order was unnecessary, basically a, hey, now, you can trust us, we're not moving our assets anywhere. But the judge sided with the New York attorney general. Why? Among other things, because of Trump and his company's, quote, demonstrated propensity to engage in persistent fraud. Adding insult to injury, the judge is also going to appoint an independent monitor to oversee the Trump organization paid for by Trump's company. And you know that one's going to sting. You can tell how much Letitia James and her fraud lawsuit are getting under Trump's skin because Trump has now filed his own countersuit against the New York attorney general. I call it a countersuit, but it is really more of an extended truth social post in lawsuit form. Quote, the continuing witch hunt that has haunted and targeted Donald Trump since he came down the golden escalator at Trump Tower in June of 2015 continues. President Trump built a great and prosperous company, but a company nevertheless that must be carefully, delicately, yet powerfully managed. It is hard to read that with a straight face. Delicately, yet powerfully managed. He manages that company so powerfully and so delicately. You can literally hear the dictation in this lawsuit. It continues, quote, the interference by a political hack like James, who is using this lawsuit for political gain, would bring great harm to the company, the brand, the employees and its overall reputation. Likewise, it could virtually destroy the highly profitable Florida properties, which include the legendary Trump National Doral Golf Club and Resort, one of the most successful in the world. Trump International Golf Club in Palm Beach, Florida, Trump Jupiter Country Club in Jupiter, Florida, and of course... One of the greatest and most successful clubs in the world, the Mar-a-Lago Club. This is a lawsuit, as in a legal document. Is he trying to pitch the judge on a golf club membership? It sort of seems like he is. In fact, the lawsuit is so ridiculous. The New York Times reports today that many of Trump's legal advisors hotly opposed filing it at all, with good reason. One of them told the lawyers filing the suit for Trump they might be committing malpractice. But much like his tax returns, Trump appears to be very, very committed to keeping certain financial secrets. 
His new lawsuit seeks to prevent the New York Attorney General from getting access to the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust, the entity under which all his other assets are structured. Among the financial secrets contained therein, quote, the trust contains his private estate plans and present decisions regarding the disposition of his assets upon death. Ah, is that what this is about? He doesn't want his kids to find out what he's left them. Joining us now is New York Law School professor Rebecca Royfe, former Manhattan assistant DA. Professor Royfe, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I mean, I'm sorry for the theatrics, but the lawsuit calls, calls for it. And it does beg the question, is that what he's trying to hide? His basically, basically his estate plans? Who gets what in the Trump uh, empire? What, what do you think all this hue and cry is about? You know, I don't think he's so concerned about what they're going to see. I think these, this is, in a way, publicity as well as an effort to, a last-ditch effort, a Hail Mary to stop this investigation that's increasingly closing in on him in a way that is troubling. I mean, you know, there's a lot at stake. Do you—so his lawyers, well, at least a, a faction of the lawyers, did not want Trump to file this Hail Mary what are the effects it could have on the case, even if it's basically thrown out? I mean, does this further antagonize the AG's office? What about the judge that's making all the decisions in this case? Yeah, I mean, the attorney general already used this as a reason for why they ought to issue the injunction, because she said, you know, all of this mention of the Florida organization suggests that he is interested in moving the money out of control of these organizations, such that it'll be harder for the New York attorney general to access those funds should they win this law. And so she's already turned this into her benefit by suggesting this lawsuit is a reason why he should issue the injunction. This is evidence that Trump really wants to move everything out of the state where she has purview. But uh, to the lawsuit itself that Trump's filing, beyond being like um, a kind of 48-page version of a Truth Social post— does it have any merit? Is there any judge in the state of Florida? And I know there are some wackadoo judges down in the state of Florida, as we've seen from the Mar-a-Lago documents drama. But is there any chance that a Florida judge looks at the case Trump lays out here and says, you know what, this is credible? I think there's ab- almost absolutely no chance. I mean, we really have he f- has filed a number of very close to frivolous or frivolous lawsuits over the past several years. And this is up there as one of the most frivolous, because what it's essentially asking is one separate sovereign to walk into another sovereign's business and stop a state investigation. And that's just not how it's done. You, there are mechanisms within New York to challenge the attorney general's investigation. He's already used some of them. And this is just not the way you do it. He's And he's going to Florida, you think, because he can find a sympathetic ear? Or what do you think that's evidence of? I, I think it's two things. One, I think he's still doing publicity. So he's still trying to use this to claim, look, this is a political witch hunt to a group of people who might be more willing to hear that or more receptive to that message. And then and he's also, you know, trying, I think, you know, who knows, he may have kind of manipulated his lawyers into doing something that he thinks would work. He says, you know, my privacy has been interfered with by this investigation and I have a right to privacy under Florida law. Therefore, you have to step in and protect me. Maybe, you know, this is, in his view, something that he thinks that the court can do, but it's just not. Pity the lawyer that had to write this this suit. It is it's a piece of work. It's a piece of work. Rebecca Royfe, former Manhattan District Attorney, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It's great to see you. Up next, why Democrats are not giving up on their chances of holding the House. Patrick Gaspar joins us here in just a moment. 
Do you remember this moment? This was New Jersey Congressman Andy Kim in the late hours of the night after the January 6th attack in the U.S. Capitol, getting on his hands and knees to help clean up the seat of our government. Andy Kim was first elected to Congress in 2018 when he narrowly defeated Republican Congressman Tom MacArthur in a race that was so close to call, it took eight days to get the final result. Congressman Kim had just won re-election by eight points when he found himself cleaning up after a violent attack against American democracy. And by 2022, it was looking like Andy Kim would be in Congress for a while. After redistricting in New Jersey, his district tilted more Democratic than it had before. But in the final days of this campaign, Congressman Kim is one of many Democrats who suddenly find themselves in a tighter race than they were expecting. Kim is running against Republican Bob Healy, a former punk rock star turned luxury yacht salesman, you know, one of those guys, who has made his campaign all about inflation and culture war issues like sex education in schools. The Cook Political Report has just changed its rating for that race from likely Democratic to leans Democratic. And Andy Kim is not the only one. Congresswoman Katie Porter, who has made a name for herself taking on big bank CEOs in congressional hearings, she now finds herself in a toss-up race against a pro-life Republican who told his California constituents he would have voted against codifying marriage equality into law. Congresswoman Elaine Loria, a member of the January 6th committee and a leading voice in the fight to defend democracy, she is in a toss-up race for her district in Virginia against an election denier who refuses to say if Joe Biden won the 2020 election. And then there's Sean Patrick Maloney, the head of the Democratic Party's campaign arm for House races, the guy who has access to all of the Democratic Party's fundraising tools and its voter data. Earlier this year, when a New York court threw out the state's congressional maps, and threw them into chaos. Maloney basically compelled his fellow Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones into retirement so that Maloney could try and hold on to his upstate New York district. But now, Sean Patrick Maloney is one of the many Democrats whose race is considered a toss-up. Just last week, the Democratic Party's campaign arm had to dump $600,000 into that race just to try and keep its leader in Congress. With just five days to go until Election Day, there's been a lot of focus, rightly so, on Senate and governor's races across the country. But Democrats are facing a very difficult election for the House of Representatives. And if Republicans prevail, the Biden administration could spend the next two years mired in congressional investigations and debt ceiling standoffs with a party whose radical base has taken the reins. But it's not just about losing power. Because when we talk about losses, we are also talking about losing people who do the very hard work in Congress, whether it is cleaning up the Capitol or fighting for democracy or taking on big corporations or coordinating campaigns across the country. That is what is at stake. Joining us now is Patrick Gaspard, former DNC chair and now president of the Center for American Progress. Patrick, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Alex. So you, you know how this all goes, right? I mean, this is an election unlike no other, like no other. But what traditionally happens and what can happen to your mind in the next five days? You know, Alex, I was actually heartened as I watched uh, that report. Yeah, I absolutely was. I wasn't discouraged in the least. Uh, I was the, I had the privilege of being the White House political director in the 2010 midterm election when we received a shellacking. Yeah. I will tell you, this uh, at this point, close to Election Day, we're looking at all of the, these House races and swing districts, and we were trailing, and in some cases, trailing significantly. 
You just laid out a number of swing districts where Democrats are incredibly competitive. We always assumed and understood that the margins would close this yeah. close to Election Day. These are 50-50 districts after all. Some of these districts that Donald Trump did exceedingly well in, right? And yet we're competitive. In some of those instances, we're at 50 or close to 50 percent of the vote. You're a glass half full person no, on this. I'm, I'm a... I'm a we, ha we gave ourselves a fighting chance by doing the right thing over the course of the last year and a half, by passing the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, stimulus, moving all of these measures to help middle class Americans that Republicans did not vote or support. support. Uh, and we did it while fighting big pharma, fighting big oil, fighting those who are trying to stop the president from enacting the student debt relief bill and housing relief. And so we've given ourselves a fighting chance. And now... All of those candidates, Congressman Kim, my friend Sean Patrick Maloney, just have to drive a very sharp contrast between the future that they offer versus what MAGA Republican extremists are coming with, with their abortion bans, their threats to Social Security and Medicare that we've held, held heard articulated by Kevin McCarthy yeah. uh, and all of the other regressive measures that they're taking to roll back our democracy. That's a that's a campaign I wish I had in 2010. <laughs> well, I, I do want to ask you about the MAGA, you know, radical MAGA Republicans. President yeah. Biden spoke yesterday in, on the national stage about this. How do you make Democrats or voters in blue states feel the urgency of that when there isn't necessarily an election denier on the ticket? Or, yes, Roe has been struck down, but they live in a state like California or New York where they feel effectively protected in terms of reproductive freedoms. Sure, like, how do sure. you compel them? How do you conjure a sense of urgency for voters who may not feel as animated by those existential concerns? You always ask the best questions and you just stuff them full of so much stuff. <laughs> Sorry. So, me, so it's okay. This is great. Let's, let's unpack some of this on, on this notion that folks in blue states may not be feeling the impact of Roe being rolled back. Let's remember, Alex, that we're already seeing blue states being absolutely overwhelmed by women who are coming from deep red states who are seeking uh, reproductive uh, health care uh, options uh, in those blue states. Uh, and that makes it much harder for women in the blue states to receive the care that they need without without waiting. That's the first thing. But the second thing is. That, you know, on, on this notion that uh, maybe there aren't MAGA extremists running everywhere, I, we were looking at the Cook political report earlier today. In all the, the top uh, competitive seats, two-thirds of them are being contested by Republicans who deny the outcome of the election uh, in 2020. There are 300 folks, according to the Washington Post, who are running now for Senate, governor, congressional seats, state legislative seats, who deny— tw uh, that Joe Biden is the president of the United States. So they, 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 they are. They're there. They're there. They're not, they're not that hard to find. They're as ubiquitous as Starbucks or McDonald's uh, in our uh, communities. And folks need to call them out and sound it out. And I'd also say, uh, Alex, you know, we're, we don't have that many single issue voters uh, in America mm -hmm. uh, anymore. Abortion is certainly important. And we've already seen that even in ruby red states like uh, Alaska following the, the Dobbs uh, ruling, uh, the uh, we outperformed uh, expectations in, in those states. I can imagine that's going to continue uh, into next Tuesday. But folks obviously care about the economy. They care about uh, democracy in addition uh, to abortion. And Democrats have to drive those hard contrasts in those spaces as well. Well, part of the reason we wanted to show the faces of the people who are in these challenging races yes. is to remind people of what Dem not just what Republicans represent, but also what Democrats represent in this very uh, treacherous time for democracy. Well, 
those are all capable candidates who are going to do a great job of taking up that uh, that narrative challenge, and they're going to lay and they're going to lay out the, uh, and have a real chance. Patrick Gaspard, former DNC chair and now president of the Center for American Progress. Great to see you. Thanks for great your time, you as now. always. We'll be right back. Just over a week after buying Twitter and with Election Day only five days away, the world's richest person, Elon Musk, is set to begin a mass layoffs at Twitter tomorrow morning. NBC News has obtained a memo sent to Twitter employees just earlier tonight that said Twitter would be, quote, reducing its global workforce on Friday and that this action is unfortunately necessary to ensure the company's success moving forward. Bloomberg reports that Musk plans to fire 50 percent of the company's staff beginning tomorrow. And according to that same internal Twitter memo, employees have been directed to check their emails to find out if they'll have jobs or not. Those who keep their jobs will receive notice in their work email, while those being fired will get an email sent to their personal address. Unceremoniously firing a large number of employees at a social network highly influential in American politics just days before a major election? That is something. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.